0: You're listening to the Real Estate Runway podcast, powered by Quattro Capital, where we are all about alternative business and investment strategies to help you amplify life and maximize wealth. Here's your host, the recovering engineer turned multifamily investor, Chad Sutton. All right, Real Estate Runway family, today we're gonna have a good friend of mine, Tommy Brandt, fellow operator with TV Capital on the call today. And we're going to talk a little bit about some real industry nuggets. So this guy endured, like many of us did, some pretty intense changes in the 2022 real estate market, and we're still living that right now. But I'm going to talk a little bit about how you make decisions to walk away from a deal versus doing a deal in tumultuous times. We're going to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, lessons learned nuggets for you, whether you're a passive investor trying to select the right deal to invest in, or you're an active operator learning how to do deals in a tumultuous market. So without further ado, let's get into that show. But before we do, if you get any value out of our show today, please leave us that five star review and thoughtful comment. That really helps us spread the word, get to know more people just like you. You can like us anywhere, podcasts are listened to, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, places like that. We're also on YouTube. Subscribe to us there at Real Estate Runway Podcast. And we're actually on TikTok now at Real Estate Runway Podcast. So join us there for your swiping pleasure. And if you'd love to be on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thequatrowaycom slash podcast. And if you want to recommend an episode, a topic, or just say hello, hit us in the comments or hit us podcast at thequattroway.com. Too many podcasts in my vocabulary here. So without further ado, let's get right into the show. Looking forward to it. All right, all right, all right, Real Estate Runway family. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Runway Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Sutton. We're powered by Quattro Capital. Let's see if I can point in the right direction. It's like it's backwards here on the TV. If you guys are watching on YouTube, welcome. We have my friend Tommy Brandt on the show. Tommy, welcome.
1: I'm excited for the conversation we're gonna get into today. How you doing, brother? hello chad thank you so much for having me man we were just talking about this a little bit before but i've listened to a number of your videos and podcasts and you've had some real superstars on here and i'm just humbled and honored to be a part of it
0: yeah yeah we're very blessed that we've had some good listeners driving good guests to the show as well so thanks for all of you out there listening consuming the content because that attracts bigger guests so the more of you listen the better guests we get and here's tommy as a result of that And by the way, thanks to Tommy for once again, enduring my scheduling challenges as operating the business is my primary and this is my secondary. I love getting here, but my calendar is always fluid. So you got to love that. But before we get into the show, Tommy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like me, you are a recovering engineer. I love that about you. Tell me about your journey. What got you to where you are today and why in the world did you get in the real estate world of all things, man? I want to hear it.
1: Yeah, for sure. I feel like after hearing your intro a couple of times, I'm like, man, he took my tagline. But you were here first, so I can't really say that. I feel like we have a similar tagline here. So uh, like you, I am also based in Nashville and I'm also a recovering engineer. I think I'm still recovering though. You look pretty well recovered to me. So I've worked with the same company for 12 years and product support, sales and operations. And thankfully, there's a lot of skills in there that are now transferable or transferable to being now in full-time real estate. So, and uh, Chad, I get asked a lot of... How, what does that transition look like going from engineer to being full-time real estate investor? And I'm happy to dive into that if you think it's valuable for your listeners. Yeah,
0: let's go through it real quick. I think it's a process and you mentioned you're still in recovery. So, you know, maybe we can help you along a little bit, make a little engineer AA group here. So
1: yeah. <laughs> For sure. It's still fresh. You know, uh, for me growing up, I, I grew up with the narrative of go to school, get good grades, get a good job, work to 65, and then right off into the sunset. That was just, the, that was the way. And I was well on my way to to do all those things. And I stumbled into real estate on accident. So back in 2006, I'm a junior in college. I'm looking for a summer job and end up working for a general contractor who was the primary servicer for a mobile home park operator in middle Georgia. And so I grew up in Macon, by the way. And so we serviced a lot of mobile homes in Macon, Warner Robins, Perry, Gray, Milledgeville, if you're familiar with the middle Georgia territory there but yeah. everything you can think of associated with that stuff. So exterior, interior, landscaping, lawn care, pressure washing, moving to the inside, rehab, repairs, renovation, make everything ready. And about 15% of the product that we supported was post-eviction. If you've dealt with evictions, you know that this is like opening a can of worms. So you'd come into some of these places, and there'd be just mountains of trash. In one room, there'd be used diapers piled up in another corner somewhere. You're wondering how this thing made that stain on that wall doing some like forensic scientist stuff and oh by the way the utilities have been cut off for weeks and you're looking at your partner like who's gonna clean the fridge not it so Chad that did a couple things for me so the first thing that did was that built a lot of character. You know that Yeah that lots part, of character coming from that.
0: And no I'm talking no about the the forest gump method, right? It's it's almost like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're gonna get when you open the door no of idea. one of these vacant units. <laughs> That's great, man.
1: Wow. Sorry, keep going, keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And the second thing that did is that gave me the ability to have the vision to know what the finished product looks like, looks like, despite all the clutter that's in front of you, that you see or smell. There are smells. And so we'll call those skills that I have harnessed and utilized. Fast forward to 2011. I've graduated Georgia Tech, got my electrical engineering degree. I worked for three years at this point for the same company and I've got some savings and I've been watching probably way too much HGTV. And I decide that I want a project. And so I found a house that was a short sale in a Nashville suburb. It was a four bed, two bath, attached garage, had an in-ground pool in the back, had pool houses. And man, doesn't it sound great? I feel like I know where you're going.
0: And by watching (laughs) HGTV, you knew that taking out walls only cost five grand. So it was good.
1: (laughs) Everything's within budget no so it was there were let's peel back some of the layers to that onion a little bit so the pool was solid black you could put your hand in there an inch and not see it um the pool houses had no foundation we literally just kind of pushed them over the there was a roof leak over the garage so the drywall ceiling had a nice little bulge in it for your people that are watching on youtube and the floor Mm. joists were 15 foot instead of 12 foot so we had to structurally re-support some areas of the house there and oh, by the way, every square inch needed to be updated from 1979. So I got a roommate that didn't mind a little bit of dust and then I saved up for big projects. So it was a slow live-in flip and a house hack. And that's that was my kind of first foray. That was my first investment property. Chad, what's funny is about two or three years into that, I get a letter from the city that says it's basically a tax appraisal. Said, hey, here's what we think your house is worth and here's your new tax bill. And I looked at what they thought my house was worth and I was like, these people are crazy because the value that they had appraised my home for was over twice what I paid for it. And what that does to me is I probably felt everything on the spectrum of emotions there. So on one end of the spectrum, I'm obviously excited, right? I'm justified in choosing my market and all these improvements that I'm doing and where I'm at. But the other end of the spectrum, I'm a little devastated. And it's probably not obvious, but that's because my narrative of go to school, get good grades, get a good job, work till you 65, like that wasn't the only way. The equity that I had just gained in my home in a couple of years was worth more than my take home, my bonus, my 401k contribution combined. And so after I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like my whole mindset around money really just got turned upside down. And so started to rethink some things that I thought to be absolute truth, started to ask questions like, what's the difference between the person that makes $100,000 a year and a person that makes a million dollars a year? I think we all know it's not time. how people spend it. So this interesting times for sure. All the while I'm still working on the house. Fast forward a little bit. I'm still grinding at work, consuming information on podcasts, YouTube, Bigger Pockets. It wasn't really till I started accelerating where I started surrounding myself with the right people. So networking, going to meetups, conferences, masterminds. Fast forward a little bit. I've turned that single family home into a couple single family homes. I've invested in five syndications since then. I've got a short-term rental as well, but apartments, value-add apartments, build-to-rent communities, self-storage, has been what I've been playing in. But right now, what I'm just focused on is value-add multifamily, just given I'm trying to service that, that lowest level of needs in the economy right now. And, and there's always the supply and demand imbalance with regards to workforce housing, so I'm super bullish on value-add multifamily currently.
0: Yeah, I love that. And folks, if you're listening, we have a couple of avatars that listen to the show. If you're listening and trying to make a change in your life, or you're in the middle of it, there is hope, right? It's hard at first and it's lonely at first. So I think what Tommy said there is get around people thinking like you. Those who, if you're trying to get to the point where you're a business owner and you're making a ton of money out of equity and everything that goes with that, it, it takes a transition period. It's a mindset shift and there's you're not going to get it all right. You may have the HGTV bug and get something wrong and you'll learn, but you'll see some good things that come out of it, just like Tommy did here. And now that we fast forward, I'm going to give some, some listening bugs to the other avatars that we have, which are the actual operators and investors who are either placing money into different syndications, whether it's multifamily office, you name it, this is real estate runway, not multifamily runway. And although we do that and Tommy does as well, we're going to focus on multifamily today, but also those who are operators, we're going to give some nuggets and some lessons of what does it look like to invest in a tumultuous market? I don't even want to say a down market because some things are good, some things are bad. There's just some challenges out there. So Tommy's going to walk us through really two deals they did last year, one that ultimately they did not do after spending a lot of time on it, and one that they did. And if we have time, I hope we get to get through how some of your strategy is changing as a result of the environment and what we went through last year. So, Tommy,
1: let's jump into the
0: one that didn't work out first, and we'll go from there.
1: For sure. Yeah, there there was, I'll talk about how we came to find out about it and just lead into that one, but. Because that, that seems to be the question of how did you, how did you find it? How did you find it? How'd you deal? find it? Yeah. They don't exist. <laughs> this one was a, it was a pocket listing from a broker that we had just been doubling down and building a relationship with. And honestly, they had made it really easy for us. They'd made themselves really accessible, hosting meetups. We just went to every single one that that we could go to. And so the, I guess we, it was really about six months of building a relationship before we ended up seeing a pocket listing where we're like asking other investors these exist, right? Like the people talk about them, a unicorn, right? Like it exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so there is a there's a 50 unit complex in a suburb of Nashville on the southeast side, probably one or two counties out. And we caught wind of it on a Sunday. This kind of speaks a little bit to the the amount of networking that you have to do beforehand, right? We talk about passive and active investing, but I think even for a passive investor, networking is the part that's the only part that's not really passive. You yeah. got to find people you trust and want to do business with same thing on the active side, right? I got to find partners that I know and trust that are superstars and can over deliver. So we found out about this opportunity on a Sunday. And just from a spreadsheet perspective, could tell really quickly that it was interesting. By Monday, we had pretty sharp pencil around where we wanted to be. We realized that what they were asking for was we thought it was pretty reasonable. They'd owned it for about two years we brought it to our other operator that we really wanted to be the primary principal on this deal. He had net worth, liquidity experience and, and you know, just willing to work with us. And so we brought it to him and just said, Hey, this is what we see in the market. These are the new developments we see coming to town. This is what we see for our underwriting. And he's, like, okay, well, the new developments are encouraging and I see you're a conservative here and here in your underwriting. And he's like, and personally, I would change some of these numbers around. So just getting feedback was good in itself. And he said, like, this looks good. I'd, I'd love to be a part of the deal. What do you need from me? We said, hey, we need an asset manager on this one. And we said, all right, I know a guy. And so we had four key team members for a 50-unit complex. And I guess we there's some back and forth on that Friday, but you know not even a week had passed and we were under contract for this one. One of the, one of the partners had already swung by the property, taken pictures and videos. And there, there were some things that caught our eye, but for the most part, we were ready to move ahead. It was refundable. Earnest money. So we were like, all right, what's the harm in getting it under contract? So, sure. So we got, we scheduled everything to get a full inspection done. So on, on inspection day, we walked every single unit that we could. I think there was like four that we just couldn't get into. Had the plumber there, had the roofer there, had the building inspector there all on the same day. And it was just a very, it was an exciting day. It was a very full day. And then I guess there were a couple things that came up as surprises to us, namely around f- foundational issues, maybe some rot in the flooring, nothing that wasn't navigable. We had some back and forth and negotiations, and they were positive for the most part. But what came up, some of my lessons learned are what to spot in an owner, red flags in an owner of a complex. We'll get to that in a second. We should touch those. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. But it wasn't really until we started peeling back the layers around the accounts receivables to where we could say, Mm. all right, something looks up with the amount of delinquency going on in this property. And truthfully, I think if we asked a couple more questions on the front end, we probably could have saved ourselves a lot of a headache. But you know, after getting accounts receivables, we, so the buyers, the sellers, the broker, all discovered throughout the process that the property manager was basically failing in their for their fiduciary responsibility to maintain accounting statements properly. They weren't auditing the what the on site property manager was doing, which also lived there, which was not paying rent and was coaching their roommates and to not pay rent. And that led into half of the complex wasn't paying rent. So for just a fifty-unit complex, there was six figures worth of delinquency. Wow! And so that is just absurd. I think you might expect somewhere between ten 000 to twenty thousand of delinquency at any given time, and something that small. But well, to put in perspective, like I bought a two hundred
0: and forty-unit complex last year that crept up to low six figures, and that was a big problem. Like we were, it was pre pre acquisition, and that that just tells you the magnitude. We're mm-hmm. talking about something that's a fifth of the size and has had the same delinquency problem.
1: That's big. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so that was, there's a couple options you can do to navigate. If you still wanted to move forward with that, when we talked about a master lease option, master lease with option to buy, we really didn't have a great relationship with the owner. We, he's out in California. We didn't know him that well. And with that a master lease with option to buy is something that could get into, oh, you've been doing improvements on my property for six months. Thanks. I'm going to cancel the agreement. Me yeah. or God forbid, he gets hit by a bus and everything gets tied up in the estate as we're trying to transact. And there's a lot of downside risk associated with that one. We wouldn't, we, there wouldn't have been a formal transaction. So all the upfront capex capital that we would have needed, wouldn't to come from investors. We would have had to get be a private note, navigable, right? But all these things just kept piling up and piling up, and it eventually pushed us outside of our appetite for risk for an asset like that one. And so we eventually just canceled contract. Chad, I can touch briefly on what were some of the red flags of the owner for that one? Because we did find out that they were out in California. We found out that they had syndicated, so they took other people's money into this deal. But the things that they didn't do that I would have done differently was they didn't have a boots on the ground outside of the PM. I think there's a lot of people that feel comfortable with just the PM being the only boots on the ground, but I will blow that whistle and raise that flag and be like, this is not okay just for this very same transaction. The other thing I would point out was I really question if they had a business plan because the inspector that inspected the buildings for us, he was like, I did this two years ago. I was the guy that did it before the other owner bought it and nothing's changed. He didn't take any of my recommendations. We still have the same subfloor issues, same foundation issues, same HVAC issues. Nothing has changed. And so, but I think you and I both learned of... Deploy capital, get it going day one, have 20 people, have 20 subs there, get work done, let the community know you're there to make it better. And so for someone just to transact and and sit on it, I I didn't have a lot of sympathy for the owner there and it just wasn't going great. We actually came back six months later to say, Hey, did you get rid of your property manager? I think he owes them a lawsuit or two. And six months later, Still has the same property manager. And we're like, we wouldn't even take the note off your hands. If you just told us to assume the note and take the property, that's not a deep enough discount, which He's is asleep really asleep at sad. the wheel.
0: He's asleep <laughs> at the wheel. It sounds, oh my gosh. It sounds like he may have had a plan at some point, hopefully, but there's just been... S- no execution, it sounds. No execution. Yeah. And even when you pointed out problems, he didn't take the responsibility. That's interesting.
1: He or she. I will say that the second time we turned it down, he finally got a proper property manager in mm. place. And it's been improving since then. And I think it'll be another couple months where we visit and we would entertain that original purchase price, but at a much healthier status for the apartment complex. So we'll see where that takes us.
0: Yeah, and, the, and those red flags, they really can save you a lot of money and time, folks, when you start to pick up on this. And that, that's one thing that, you know, you'll hear me harp on this in some of my more technical episodes. It's, it's very easy to look at, like, everyone loves the T12, and that's nothing more than a profit and loss statement. And if you've listened to me or my mentor, Keith Cunningham, talking about accounting, profit is a theory, cash is a fact, right? And when you start looking at that balance sheet, and you don't always get the balance sheet at the property level, because really you don't care about the balance sheet of the business. If you're buying a business, you do. But you do care about a piece of the balance sheet, which is accounts receivable, right? And that is who owes you rent. Your mainstream of income is rent. And if that cash isn't hitting the account, I don't care what your profit and loss statement says. like You're about to have a huge bad debt situation when you write all that off. It doesn't hit the T12. So anyway, that's a huge thing to watch. And So glad you brought that up. And so y'all ultimately did not do that deal, still haven't done that deal. And so I assume, maybe speak before we go to the next thing on how you guys had structured the contract, because it sounds like you were able to identify these risks and ultimately walk away relatively unscathed, right?
1: For sure. Yeah, we did have some capital invested because obviously we ordered the inspection and scoping the line, stuff of that sort. We, We even did the legal paperwork probably a little too early. So If we never do business again, that's probably 15,000. We don't get back collectively, but we're all good friends. I anticipate we will find something to do business. And then it becomes a DBA or doing business as on another property. So I'm calling that maybe a loss if it doesn't work out. But outside of that, our contract looked like there was non, there was refundable earnest money for 1% of the purchase price on that one. So nothing egregious. We didn't have to do 3% of the purchase price hard day one, none of this stuff that, that was 2021 and. I guess, 60 days total closing, 30-day due diligence period, 30 days to close. We had we put in there the ability to buy extensions based off of 0.25% of purchase price, Mm. basically a quarter of earnest money. So we could buy another 60 days if we needed to. We were actually shopping around for a very specific loan product that we knew was going to take longer to close. So it it was looking like it was going to be a 90-day close just for the debt alone. But yeah.
0: Yeah, I think those are great lessons right there. And so I think we got a lot of nuggets out of that one. And sometimes I think you even said this to me in the beginning of the call. Sometimes no deal is better than a bad deal. Always, actually. Do not buy a bad deal just because it's under contract. Use your due diligence. Make sure whoever you're investing in is doing their due diligence. You've heard some things to poke at when you're reviewing a pro forma to invest in or whether you're reviewing seller's financials. Ask for these things. Like this is stuff you should understand, and you can help identify risk and save yourself some heartache in the future. Because I, I would hate to be the people invest with that individual. Because I bet you they hadn't seen distributions and probably won't for a while. Nectar understands that raising capital is labor and time intensive, and we exist to solve that problem for you. Nectar provides fast, flexible, cash flow based financing for experienced rental owners and operators. Whether you need cash. For acquiring properties, portfolios, or you simply need it for ROI generating renovations or expansion of staff, Nectar has your back. Grab your 12 month PNL with Debt Service and click the link in the show notes below to apply today. Anyway, Tommy, let's pivot to your other deal. So you guys had one that was successful last year. Talk about that one. I'm sure there were some challenges because last year everyone had a hard time getting things closed. But let's walk through that one a little bit. What'd you like about it? Any red flags that you picked up on from before? And how did it ultimately go getting it done?
1: For sure. Yeah. So we closed on a 49 unit complex in Louisville last year at Louisville, Kentucky. I guess there's a couple of Louisvilles in the South. So Louisville, Kentucky, we're on the South side of the city. We're in one of the highest median income tracks on the South side. So, and generally speaking, the further you get away from downtown Metro, the better in terms of median income, tenant base, stuff of that sort. So underwritten enough to know where we wanted to be and where we didn't want to be that was in one of the few pockets on the south side that I would tolerate so but you know it was under contract before we bought it by another group and similar to I think what happened a lot last year was it got to the closing table and it just couldn't get across it and so the broker our team members already had properties in Louisville the broker came back to us and said hey this guy didn't work out are y'all still interested we said, okay, sure. But we put out two offers. We put out one offer where it was just, hey, we're going to buy it. And this this price. If we got a source, new debt sucks. So I need a discount. Or if there's a loan assumption possible, I'd like to assume your loan. So we assumed mid four interest rate loan on that one. We didn't care what was happening, even though our closing got delayed 30, 45 days. We didn't care what was going on with interest rates and what Jay Powell was doing with the Fed and all this, that. So we were locked in for all of that roller coaster ride, thankfully. The inspection had, well, I guess didn't really uncover too much more than we already knew about. So nothing really crazy. There wasn't any egregious retrading. It was was a $3.5 million purchase price for 49 units. So that puts you about $72,000 a door and pro forma rents for about 925 on average. So sitting sitting pretty good from cost basis perspective, pretty healthy. A lot of markets in Kentucky in general are just lower income, lower rent. So I think it, there's going to be some people that listen to this and say, you can get a 2-1 for under a $1,000. Where are you at? Southeast, <laughs> baby. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And so we were just made sure we were well capitalized in reserves and the raise was two and a half, right? I think we came into that with 57% bond value. So raised well over half the purchase price, which is the norm. If you're assuming a loan anywhere from 40 to 60% LTV and you want to be capitalized for reserves and CapEx.
0: So, yeah. And folks, I think that's a, it plays into the key lesson, right, of how you do a deal today. And, and I love to quote one of our economists that we follow several, Jay Parsons, people like that, but Peter Linneman, he actually is on record saying, look, if you look at the past history of so since the beginning of time when things were tough, if you find a deal that makes sense, where the fundamentals make sense. So let's say the median income is good. The asking rents have room to grow. You can spend some money and get the yield out. but You have the ability to assume a loan. That makes sense. So it's use a little more equity and do the deal. Like sometimes, sometimes when capital markets are what are stressing the deal, now granted, don't go do a dumb loan and bleed yourself out because yeah. you can't pay the mortgage. That's worse. But you may just have to leverage a little bit lower. If we were talking a year ago, people were still leveraging 75, 8 to 85%. I've never done that, but good Lord. It was there, yeah. cheap money. Yeah, And so, but so here he's, look, we leveraged at 57%, put a little extra cash in the deal and we're going to do well. And you had you assumed a great rate, it sounds like. So, so that was in good shape, but yeah, any, any last, so this one went well, but did you find any, any lessons from the owner or any lessons from the deal that, that you'd also pass to the listeners on this one, or was it pretty clean?
1: There were a couple of things right around transaction, just so many things that you really have to be mindful of at transaction. And a lot of that has to do with expect the, some things to be misrepresented by the property manager that's getting fired. Assuming you're not going to be using the existing one, so we came into this thinking, hey, we're at 94 percent occupancy. Oh, suddenly we're inexplicably at 90. It's just okay. Thanks a lot. Not going to name names, but there, this one in Louisville in particular has just been egregious, and I think is well known as being terrible. Yeah. But I digress a little bit. There, there's there's a couple. So anybody that's getting subsidies from Section 8 or nonprofits. There's probably going to be a lot of payments that still go to the existing operating accounts and ownership groups. And so make sure you have good withstanding to ask for your money that is getting deposited into their accounts. Make sure that they know about those transactions that are taking place. I think we're a little over $20,000 that has been made to the, the previous owner, even after we closed from Section 8, who are just super slow to update that. So I think be wary of what you're inheriting, where their money is coming from. Because you're probably going to go have to chase it down. We've owned it for six months. There's still uh, 5,000 that we're chasing down.
0: Yeah, yeah. And but there's uh, there's always clauses we put in the contract to protect against this last minute drop in occupancy. And the hard part is, okay, they're usually phrased something to the effect of owner will use best intentions to operate a, a standard course of business. Yacht. So it's really hard to prove. Yeah. but th- I think that I've done this too. So you bought one that has come from 94 and dropped to 90. I bought one that was represented at 95 or we found out it was 75. And mm-hmm. this was like very close to the end of closing, right? When we did this. And so it's like, you have a choice. Okay. Do I go after the seller for misrepresentation or do I take it as an opportunity? And so, okay, well now I have that many units I can blitz renovate out of the gate. Now I had the muscle to do that. Not everyone has the muscle to absorb that number of units right out of the gate, get them leased back up. So, you know, what I would recommend And I think you'd echo this, Tommy, is folks, it's a week, three days before closing. Make sure you're checking that rent roll and delinquency monthly. Keep up with stuff. Don't check it at underwriting and don't look at it again because you will get surprised. Mm -hmm. But be checking your rent roll and your delinquency. Put them in a tab form over time in Excel and just watch them. Make sure things aren't slipping. And if they do, cry foul because you lose leverage the closer you get to closing. And this is the hard part cuz the one where i decided where we were actually 75% not 95 the owner they actually instructed their property manager when people left not to move them out in the system so they were still giving me they were giving me false documents that said the rent roll should occupied and and Jeez. they weren't actually moving the tenant out so they how are you going to figure this out t minus a month make sure you're doing like yeah, at least go do a construction walkthrough or something like that. Just and show up on site. They don't get to tell you what units you're going to pick 20% of the units and say you need to go get in them. And you, know, you, you get to say, okay, here's the rent roll. I want unit this. You need, they need to notice the people and notice the residents so that they know we may enter your unit in two days. That way they can't hide it from you. You can walk on site and see. And that's the only way, that's the only way we discovered it. Tommy pre-closing wow. was we did a walkthrough and we're like, wait a minute. Somebody's supposed to be here. This unit's empty and been empty for a while.
1: So it's, you you always have to trust, but verify, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you put anything in there if something is misrepresented X credit back at closing? We try, we usually try. So there's a lot of reps and
0: warranties. We're getting into legal now, guys, but there's a lot of reps and warranties, representations and warranties that the buyer and seller have to make and agree to make when they're signing the contract. And so you try. We always try to put as much in there as we possibly can against the other party, and as little as we can against. <laughs> and it usually winds up somewhere in the middle. So depending who you're negotiating with, how good the attorneys are, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. Unfortunately, this was a well-gunned attorney that we were dealing with. So yeah. we did what we could. We had a mutually shitty contract. If that makes sense. But it it you know there, there wasn't enough there was enough there for us to go after. Them. And we actually issued him a notice. But what the challenge is what happens? They say we disagree. We say we disagree and we go to court. Yeah. The problem is we had earnest money up. We had a loan ready to close. And so we're like, okay, if we go to court, there's, we had our attorneys think about it. There's a 50-50 shot. We proved this out, right? And depending on the jury and the judge, and while we could have gone to court and maybe won, we would have either way expended several hundred thousand dollars in legal bills chasing this. We'd have lost mm-hmm. the property, lost whatever money we'd committed on the property, likely, And no one may have won in the end, right? And so it's like the legal battle, the contract is important and you can hold people's feet to the fire with it. But sometimes it's okay. Do I take a commercial solution here or do I take a legal solution? You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. didn't mean to go down that rabbit hole, but it's it's interesting stuff. Great Um, points. Well, Tommy, before we conclude, I do want to get into what you and your group are doing differently. So we've all experienced a 50-year event and the debt cycle. This hasn't happened in 50 years, right? So you're fortunate to have gotten to see it, folks. You lived it. Congratulations. It's almost through, I promise. But I think I'd love to hear just what are y'all doing differently, Tommy? Underwriting, assumptions, things like that.
1: For sure. Yeah. And especially after the, the first, we'll call it a failure, the failure to close. I've looked, I've given so much scrutiny to collections, economic vacancy. I, people say, we're at such and such physical occupancy. I'm like, I don't even care about physical occupancy. Just tell me economic. From it doesn't now matter. If they're not paying, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So as far as our underwriting and how we've pivoted, it's really since, I think it's been late last year where we started evolving with the market. And so we've gotten way more pickier just from a mar- appetite for market risk and really lack thereof. So we've ruled out tertiary and rural. Market so back when debt was free, I might go to some of these population fifteen thousand towns and entertain buying a fifty unit or a hundred unit there, even if there was no developments happening right but now obviously you that you made a point early about the fundamentals like the top two things we look for in any market is job growth and population growth there's obviously things you need to mind like absorption and crime rate trending in the correct direction for the income track that you're looking for median income does median income support your business plan without government intervention with subsidies, stuff like that. But so obviously market risk is something we're super sensitive to just given the headwinds in the market around vacancies and collections. I mean, we're finding that there's more and more people that feel that they should be living for free. There's household consolidation taking place. So we've got a couple headwinds with regards to just getting bodies in the door, but we can't sacrifice on getting the right bodies. It's kind of like if you're hiring people, you can't afford to sacrifice because the opportunity cost of say someone comes a week later and it's a perfect fit. You can't. You got to leave that spot open. The other thing I would say, Chad, it really in regards to our terminal cap rate. So I think for the longest time, general consensus was underwrite for ten bips a year. We'll call it a day, right? That's representative of the market working against you. That's sufficient. Now we've tr- we've pretty much taken a point of our exit cap is probably going to fall within the 2018 2019 realm because ten bips is not really going to make sense anymore. It's probably it maybe more in some markets, it may be flat in some markets, but Show me what a normal cap rate and a normal debt cycle looks like. I think twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen was what we were starting to see a little bit of upward, so we'll call it conservative. But that's those are the two biggest shifts that we've had. Obviously, you gotta be mindful of the expenses, gotta be realistic. Insurance is crazy in some markets, property taxes is always gonna be higher than what's in place. Things to be mindful of always. Yeah, and it
0: all comes down to the numbers. You want to be reasonably conserved, but not kill every deal. And I think on the cap rate, what he's mentioning there is. On a good property, we're probably trading somewhere in a five and a quarter to 575 right now. And then from a, we'll call it challenged property, you're probably looking 575 to 6.25. And there's exceptions in all those, but that going back to 20, and this is multifamily, going back to 20, uh, 2018, 2019, 2020, that's what they looked like. And to his point, if we stayed in the mid fours or low fours that we've seen in the last couple of years and you did 10 dips a year, you'd probably barely touch that. So we had to go a little more conservative there.
1: Do you manage multiple legal entities? Is your data scattered across various unsecure systems? Is your team spending too much time on manual processes? Do you struggle to meet reporting deadlines? Simplify Entity Management and Compliance with EntityKeeper. EntityKeeper helps easily manage entities, build and maintain complex organizational charts, and track filing deadlines. All in one secure, cloud-based platform. And with automated alerts and centralized document storage, you'll stay two steps ahead of compliance deadlines. Click the link in the show notes to learn more and book a demo. Tommy, before we get off the show,
0: I got to ask you a couple of questions uh, that we do every guest on the show. So let's get right into that. Brother, what is your superpower in life or business and how does it benefit you?
1: For me, I think it's just mostly staying organized. I'm not one to act sporadically. I want to line up all the pins and knock them down in one fell swoop. So staying organized, planning and execute and repeat is definitely how I operate. So operational excellence, we'll call it. I love that. Said
0: another way, get up, kick ass, repeat. So that's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) So let's go to the flip side of the coin though. Give me a little bit of dirt. What's your biggest mistake, again, life or business? And what did you learn from it?
1: For me, we talked a little bit about mistakes in looking at assets, we'll call it blindly for lack of a better word, but I've gotten a lot pickier with who I choose to do business with. I did a joint venture, so I can't talk a whole lot about it, but it, it didn't turn out well. The asset's doing fine, but the partnership started to get toxic and it's just not worth my time anymore. So who I'm doing business with, betting partners on the front end. If someone asks me, I'm not here to sell securities, but if someone asks me, I got a week to close, can you help me raise a million dollars? The answer is always no. If I don't know you, I haven't worked with you before, the answer is always no. I want to know what you're doing. I want to know that it's consistent with the stuff that you're doing. I don't want there to be any firsts in what you're doing whenever you're asking for my investors participating in anything like that. So I want there to be a deep-seated relationship because if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. So...
0: Yes. And I've heard one other person say that, and that's my partner, Maurice. I don't know if you and he talked and uh, he (laughs) stole it from you, you stole it from him. But (laughs) anyway, so, all right, last two questions, man. Quattro Capital is all about philanthropy, people, property, profits, philanthropy, turning around, taking care of people. So I love to give our guests the opportunity to share your philanthropic heart. And a lot of times we've had people on the show, like comment that they've contributed to that cause that they resonated with as well. So what is that for you? Love to share your heart there.
1: For sure, yeah, it's a little bit of a mixed bag right now. So I love the Habitat for Humanity, just having the hands-on experience that I had and being able-bodied, like why wouldn't I help someone in need with framing for their house or helping with their roof or whatever. So I, I participated in that a couple times a year. I'd say that I'm also on the board of a nonprofit. It's new for me, it's still really fresh, but it's NAP. There's three A's, so National Association of Asian American Professionals. My wife is Cambodian American. And I think we probably, you and I probably don't think about this a lot, but trying to find people that align with your culture is actually probably pretty challenging for Laotian, Vietnamese, Chinese, Japanese, Cambodian communities. And so um, preserving the culture, rich history, because we are a pretty young nation, all things considered, that are in those Asian American communities, connecting young professionals with each other. I I really support that.
0: I love that, man. I love that. And last question, how do people get in touch with you? I'm sure they're going to want to reach out, chat with you. Maybe they want to invest with you. Pick your brain. What's the best way to find Tommy Brandt today?
1: Yeah, and, and I will. I'll preface this with: so many people have given to me, yourself included. I think you you spoke at a meetup that I attended last year. That was originally how we got connected. I've been ever so grateful, and so I try to give back as much as I can in the same vein. And so I wrote a book uh, called "A Passive Investor's Guide to the Multifamily Universe." So you can go take a look at the. It's very data driven. With me being an engineer, there's hardly any fluff. I'm sorry, not sorry on that regards, but check it out at tbcapitalgroup.com, like tango Bravo capitalgroup.com Or Tommy Brandt Capital. Yep, so. Yeah.
0: works yeah. <laughs> too. there's that. So awesome, tbcapital.com. As always, that will be down in the show notes for your clicking pleasure. Tommy, pleasure having you on, man. Th- good to see you in person and hope to see you do great things in the future and maybe even come back on them. If we're lucky. So thanks for doing the show today and we'll talk to you next time. For sure. Thank y'all. Well, how about that, folks? That was a great episode with my friend, Tommy. Lots of insightful pieces of information that you can take with you on your experience journey of learning how to vet deals, You know how things are changing in the underwriting world. And just when should you walk away from a deal and what should you be watching as you're buying a deal? When you do things in due diligence, sometimes things change over time. And so keep an eye out, make sure you apply these lessons. If you got any value out of this show today, we'd love it if you'd leave us that five-star comment and thoughtful review. That's the way we grow the show. Please do it. Help someone else like you pay it forward. Hit us at the Real Estate Runway Podcast on TikTok, Real Estate Runway Podcast on YouTube, or Real Estate Runway Podcast anywhere podcasts are found for your listening pleasure. Thank you for listening to the show today. We'll be with you next time. Until the next time, this has been the Real Estate Runway Podcast. Over and out. We hope this episode was insightful and brought value to your day. If so, please be awesome and leave us a five-star review. Find out how Team Quattro can help you at thequattroway.com. Until next
1: time, this is the Real Estate Runway Podcast.